0: The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. In the words of John Piper, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Not only may you see just a tiny fraction of what God is doing in your life, but the part that you do see may make absolutely no sense to you. Amen? Rarely, if ever, is God doing only one thing at any one given moment in time. We find this to be particularly magnified in this historical count here that we're going to look at in Genesis 4. 45 uh, of Joseph that spans multiple chapters in this book. What we're going to consider today in Genesis 20, uh, 45 is how the Lord, in his unadulterated goodness and complete sovereignty, is preparing an individual, at the same time he is preparing a nation, at the same time he is preparing the world, at the same time he is orchestrating all of history to accomplish his purposes for his good pleasure and glory. As we consider God's working in and through Joseph in Genesis 45, we will be considering how Joseph is used, first of all, as a template, secondly, as a tool, and finally, as a type. Before we get into our study, though, let's pray first, and then we will read our text. Father, thank you. Uh, What a privilege it is to be called by your name a privilege that not a single one of us have had anything to do with, Lord. Uh, It is entirely uh, your choice, your goodness, your sovereignty that has made it happen. And, uh, Lord, we submit to that calling. And gladly so, Lord. We thank you uh, immensely for your graciousness and your mercy that you've shown towards us. Lord, we thank you that uh, whether times are comfortable or absolutely miserable, we know that you are still on your throne, that you are good, that you are sovereign, and that you are working all those things together for good to accomplish your purposes for your glory. Lord, we also thank you that as a side note, we benefit. And uh, Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, We thank you for this time that we have now to examine your word and to see your sovereign hand at work in history. Lord, may we not miss Uh, its intended purpose. Lord, I pray that by the time we are done here, you have caused each one of us to look more like Christ, that we will have a clearer understanding of your word and that we will each have a clearer understanding of our mission as ambassadors for Christ. We hand this time over to you and ask you to do great and mighty things in and through it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you haven't done so yet, turn to Genesis chapter 45. Starting in verse one, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He, then he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence greatest understatement that we'll make this morning so joseph said to his brothers come near to me please and they came near and he said i am your brother joseph whom you sold into egypt and now do not be stressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for god sent me before you to preserve life for the famine has been in the land since the, uh, these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest And God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. I bet. (laughs) When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take, your father and, your ha- and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for the, for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Okay. For us to properly comprehend the magnitude of what just occurred as Joseph responded to his brothers the way that he did, it is important that we do some review. Joseph was the firstborn son of the woman his father loved. Dad wasn't nearly as fond of or maybe even fond at all of the three other women with whom he had sons, all of which conceived before his beloved Rachel. When Joseph was born, he was the apple of his father's eye and eventually, if not immediately, received special and privileged treatment as we see with the expensive designer coat. Joseph, a very young man, began to receive visions from the Lord, visions which portrayed him as the brother to, to whom all of his other brothers and his parents would bow. Not only did he have these visions, but he made them known to his family members, which did not make him very popular with them. The brothers first plotted to kill him. Then under the direction of Brother Judah, they had a brilliant plan to make some money instead uh, by selling him into slavery. The Midianite traders who purchased him then in turn sold him to an Egyptian captain of the guard named Potiphar, who used him as his house servant. Potiphar's wife took a lustful interest and made repeated attempts to seduce him in doing the right thing by rejecting her advances and doing so for noble reasons. She falsely accused him of violating her, and he was thrown into prison. While in prison, he met Pharaoh's chief butler and cook, who had been placed there for reasons of displeasing Pharaoh. While there, Joseph used his God-given gift to interpret the dreams of these two, One dream revealed that the butler would return to serve Pharaoh, and the other uh, dream revealed the execution of the cook, both of which eventually became true. In spite of the butler's promise to tell Pharaoh of Joseph's plight, the butler ended up back in Pharaoh's service and completely forgot about Joseph, who, who then spent two more years locked up for a crime that he did not commit. Finally, Pharaoh himself became troubled by some dreams he was having about fat and skinny cows, Upon his request for an interpreter, the butler suddenly remembered this guy he met in prison two years ago, and they sent for Joseph. Joseph has now been through a lot of junk. Junk he did not deserve. Junk that he did not earn. Junk that should have happened to bad guys rather than good guys who are really doing the the right thing. Junk that could easily produce a bitter and vengeful spirit in the most righteous of men. Keep that in mind. Joseph was the privileged and the favored son who was unjustly victimized by his crazy brothers and an unjust system. He had every worldly reason to cry victim and seek vengeance on everyone that did him wrong. Now that he had been elevated to the second most powerful man in Egypt, he had every worldly opportunity to execute that, that vengeance. That's why the brothers were terrified but what do we see joseph do instead he doesn't respond the way many of us would respond up to this point if you don't know the punchline to the story it might be easy to assume that joseph was manipulating his brothers just so that he could retrieve benjamin the one that he loved uh, his only full brother by the way and then unleash all his wrath on the rest of the guys Well, let's see what Joseph does. In verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. Again, if you don't know the punchline, you may be envisioning Joseph kind of losing his mind now, going, I got these guys. (laughs) They are mine. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Now, I don't know about you, uh, one of my favorite movies is uh, Clint Eastwood Hang 'em High. Anybody ever seen that? Th- this is that Hang 'em High moment where Clint Eastwood slowly lifts his head to reveal his steely glare and lowers the bandana on his neck to reveal the rope scars to the guys that unsuccessfully hanged him. Remember, he is the second most powerful man in the nation. Maybe the world at this point and he could do anything that he wanted. Well, verse 2 says, And he wept aloud, so the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Okay, not certainly not hang him high moment. Uh, I guess he's going to use the snowflake approach, I'm a victim, and look what you did to me. Maybe he's going to try to bring them to their knees with crippling guilt. And make them regret what they did for the rest of their lives. Uh, we might even be able to get a reality show out of this one. But, again, not so with Joseph. Verse 3, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His first concern is not vengeance here. Okay? His first concern is, is dad still around? Continues, But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Okay, again, an understatement. Not the east would approach, but certainly the east would response. Okay? These guys know that they're guilty, and they deserve death. They know it. Now they are uh, bachal, which is the Hebrew word for terrified. Okay? They're freaking out. Verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please and they came near, they still have no idea what's coming. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Okay, this is important. The brothers did him really wrong, okay? Uh, No court in the land would deny that. There are two reactions that we tend to fall into, two extremes that we often fall into when someone has sinned against us, both of which are wrong. The first one is on one end of the spectrum which says okay now i'm going to make you pay for it i may make you pay for it in action i may make you pay for it in word i may make you pay for it in manipulating you but i'm going to make you pay for it the other extreme is uh, that's okay it's not a problem okay we have this problem with our kids all the time is they'll they'll do something usually unintentionally Uh, to inconvenience someone else, and they'll apologize for it, and the response that they'll get from the adult is often, oh, that's okay. No, it's not. Okay, Let them hear what they've done. Let them take responsibility for it. Sin here is not glossed over. Joseph doesn't say this is okay. Joseph calls it what it is, and he's very honest about it. You guys sold me into Egypt. We're not going to ignore it, cover it up, or in any way enable it. It was sin, and we're going to call sin, sin. But we're not going to dwell on it. Now that it's been identified, it's been acknowledged, it's not being swept under the carpet, now what do we do about it? Verse 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. In Joseph's response, there is no vengeance or retribution for the sin. It's been acknowledged, but he's not getting them back. Joseph doesn't want them to feel badly. He doesn't even want them to feel badly. He doesn't accomplish this by pretending nothing bad happened. He does so by identifying the sin, but then extending mercy. How can he do this? Well, it continues. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there have yet There are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many uh, survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph understands things not from a worldly perspective anymore. This is from God's perspective. He sees from God's eyes rather than his own. He recognizes that it is not man or chance or circumstances that govern his life, but it is God. Uh, A while back, um, the men from North Shore Baptist, when I was a member over there, uh, we had a conference in which the theme was, it's not about you. So much of the message in our churches in America today have become so distorted with it's about you. It's about you becoming successful. It's about you gaining things. It's about your comfort. It's about your health. It's about your wealth. It's about you. It's not. Okay? Thank God that Joseph did not embrace that false gospel when he's sitting in the pit. Or thank God on behalf of his brothers that he didn't embrace that as they're standing before him. What we see from this privileged, victimized, and now very powerful man is quite the opposite of what we would expect. Contrary to hating his victimizers, he has nothing but compassion and mercy for them. Instead of executing vengeance, he lavishes blessing. Instead of bringing them in closer so that he can lash out, he brings them in closer so he can show affection. This is not a worldly or humanly approach to things, but it is a godly approach to things. So how does this potentially spoiled kid who knows the day is coming when he will rule over his entire family exhibit such godly character? How did he get there? It must be, and this is where we start thinking wrongly again, it must be because God just made him that way, right? And that's not the way God made me. In a sense, it's true, God did make him that way, but not by birth, not by genetics, not by what he was born with. But he did so over many years and many trials, many of which we get to see. James instructs us to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance and that that endurance leads to completion and perfection if we let it. Contrary to our modern notion of pain and suffering, trials are not a justification for turning to drugs, depression, and wild living. Rather, they are the surgical tools that God uses to mold us into reflections of our Lord and Savior for whom we are then to be ambassadors. In this narrative, God uses Joseph as a template for how we are to submit to his plan to process all circumstances around us, to perceive his good and sovereign plan in all things, and then to manifest that understanding as peace, long-suffering, and love to those around us. Catch this, even to those who do us horribly wrong. God used Joseph and continues to use Joseph to be a template for us in how a child of God should behave. Secondly, God used Joseph as a tool, a tool to accomplish great things. Again, Joseph says in verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, wait a minute. I see what happened here, and it was them who sent him to Egypt. Okay, how can he say this? Spurgeon writes, how wonderfully those two things meet in practical harmony, the free will of man and the predestination of God. Man acts just as freely and just as guiltily as if there were no predestination whatsoever. Yet God ordains, arranges, supervises, and overrules just as accurately as if there is no free will in the universe. Joseph gets that there would be no selling of him into slavery if not for the divine hand of God directing it. And why? To use his appointed servant Joseph as a tool by which to preserve the people that would become the nation of Israel, from which the Savior for all mankind would come. Joseph gets it. Joseph reminds them again later in chapter 50 when the brothers inform him that his father has died and they become scared again and they think they're in trouble again. Joseph says, do not fear, for I am, for am I in the place of God? No, that's God's job. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people would be kept alive as they are today. Again, not a human perspective. This is God's perspective. We need to understand that without the slavery, there's no Potiphar. No Potiphar, there's no prison no prison, there's no butler, no butler, there's no pharaoh, no pharaoh, there's no power to rescue from famine, no rescue from famine, there's no Israel, no Israel, there's no Christ, and no Christ, there's no resurrection, and you and I die in our trespasses and sins. So far, we have seen God use Joseph as a template for how the child of God is to behave or will behave, and we have seen God use Joseph as a tool in orchestrating the events that would ultimately lead to the salvation of many. Now we're going to finally consider how God uses Joseph as a type. What is this thing called a type? If you haven't run across that yet, you know, you head off to seminary, you'll hear that a lot. Uh, In Romans 5, we read, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. For if many died through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. Simply put, I know there's, there's a lot of busyness in that passage. Simply put, through one man, Adam, the human race is affected. Through one man, Christ, the, race, or the human race is affected. When we leave here today, and I'll come back to this in a minute, when we, the Schultzes, leave here today, uh, it will be our ultimate goal to go home. As we drive to the end of the church driveway, we will see Hicksville Road, and we will turn right on it because of what we see. We know what it looks like. We will come to a big green sign that indicates that the upcoming entrance to the highway will take us west on the Southern State Parkway. We will continue until we see another big green sign giving us our cue to connect to the Motorbrook Parkway going north. We will pass multiple familiar landmarks, such as Roosevelt Field Mall, assuring us that we are indeed going in the right direction. As we continue to follow all the signs and landmarks and roadways, we will ultimately reach our goal of being home. I would go through the rest of them, but I'm afraid some psycho would get a hold of this tape and show up on our doorstep. So, now, the big green signs are important. They serve a purpose, but they are not the goal. The mall may be a fun and interesting place to be, and even very helpful if you need to get something, uh, but it is just another item used to get us to the end game. Throughout history, God has strategically ordained the existence of people, places, rituals, and events with the purpose of giving us signs to help us identify the end game more clearly. In this case, the end game is Christ. If we follow the signs along the way, not only will we be able to recognize him when he comes, and we will understand his character and his purpose much more clearly. This narrative on Joseph is not the end game. And if we preach this chapter and we preach this passage and we preach every aspect of Genesis and we preach every aspect of every passage in the Old Testament in and of itself, yes, there are things that we can get out of it, but that is not its primary function. Through the type Adam, we more clearly see that through one man all are affected. Through the type Noah, we see that through one man all are saved. Through Abraham and Isaac, we more clearly see the sacrifice of the only son by his father who makes him carry his own wood to his own execution. Did you ever think about that? Through the Passover, we more clearly see the value of the innocent and unbroken lamb and the spreading of its sacrificial blood on the posts of wood for the salvation of the people. And then there's the timeless Melchizedek. And then there's the resurrection of Jonah, etc., 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 and the list goes on. In Joseph, we see the man of God exclusively gather his people before himself, reveal to them a plan that they wouldn't completely get until it played out, just like we see Jesus dine with them during the Last Supper, exposing them to his impending demise. And they clearly don't get it. In Joseph, we see a righteous man unjustly betrayed by those closest to him and then sold for a cheap bounty. In Joseph, we see his enemies devise a plan that would backfire into elevating him to be king whoops we see a cloak covered in blood and an imprisonment from which the resident would arise and save his people we see love and patience exercised in such a way that those people would come to repentance we see a generous distribution of bread and other gifts to those that are reconciled and then an ushering of them into a promised land of abundant provision too many studies of joseph's story make this big big green sign of his story the destination. It is not. While we do learn many valuable lessons about God and righteousness, this is most importantly a sign designed to get us to the one that all Scripture points to. If we fail to see the primary objective of this passage as pointing all to Christ, we do that passage a great disservice and present it incorrectly. In John five thirty nine, Jesus states, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. Amen. So let me pray for us. And then uh, I'll bring up who's next. All of our people are gone. So, okay, hang on. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for instruction this morning. Lord, thank you for the blessing uh, it was for me to... Uh, have to study this. And um, Lord, thank you for your revelation to us. Lord, now we ask uh, that we would not just be wowed by your word, um, that we would not just have our curiosity satisfied, that we would not just become smarter sinners, uh, but Lord, that you would engraft it into our souls, uh, cause it to be an inbuilt part of us such that we begin to uh, react and act as Joseph did, as he extended great grace and great mercy to those who persecuted him. More importantly, Lord, that we would act as Christ did, our head. Lord, that we would uh, love and extend grace and mercy to those who can be at times our vilest enemies. Uh, Lord, That takes your work in our lives, though, and that is what we ask for. Lord, change us, cause us to be and act and appear to be more like Christ. And, uh, Lord, change us from the inside out. Lord, cause your Holy Spirit to reign and to conquer our flesh. And, uh, Lord, may we uh, bring you glory in everything that we think and say and do from this point forward. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.